The Book of Jonah, Chapter 3 Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Hi everyone, my name is Sawyer and it's great to be with you all today. I grew up in a small town about two hours north of Toronto and my high school had a ping pong table. It wasn't pretty, a corner was broken off and the net was always falling over, but we had a table. It was the first thing you saw. When you came into the school, you opened the front doors and in the lobby there was the table and it was always surrounded by this swarm of adolescent young males. We would play before school, at lunch, after school, sometimes during class. And because there were so many people, the games had to be fast. It was cutthroat. It was the first to three points. We called it King of the Hill. And I was the king of that hill. I would demolish my opponents. People came from far and wide to try and challenge me and take my belt, but I defended it aggressively. One such day, like no, uh, unlike the others, I was holding court. I was on my throne, slashing, slicing, dicing, giving serves, and, and spiking the balls. Kids would need uh, years of counseling to undo the trauma they were receiving that day. And as I was uh, holding court, the crowd began to part, and someone approached from the middle. And I thought, ooh, a challenger. But it was a staff member from the school. It was a custodian, and she, she kind of waddled up, and she pointed at me, and she said, you, come with me. Okay. Uh, I followed her down the hallway. She took a turn. She took another turn. She took a third turn and came to this big metal door. She slid it open. I went in. She closed it behind us. It was this room, concrete walls. There was no windows. There was like a little sketchy light just hanging on a thread. She sat me down and she said, I know who you are and I know what you do. So don't bother trying to tell me otherwise. And I thought, all right, this is how I die. This is the day it happens. I don't know what's going on, but I've made peace. And she said, I know that you're a Christian and there's someone that I think you need to talk to. My friend's son has been on a really bad path the past few years. Substance abuse of various forms. He's not living at home anymore. It's put strain on his relationship with his family. He spent the last summer basically 
in a farmer's field strung out in a tent. Uh, and I think it'd be good if you went and talked to him about Jesus. I'm not religious myself, but I know you are. I think you should go do it. And that was it. And then I walked out down the hall. And as I was, uh, you know, contemplating doing this, I felt kind of apathetic. I thought, this is really not something that I want to do right now. Because at the time, the church that I grew up going to was going through a lot of drama and politics. Uh, I saw a lot of divisiveness and good people getting hurt. And so I really didn't feel like inviting somebody into that right now. I was kind of half embarrassed about uh, just the state of the church as a whole. So I was going through, uh, walking towards this person. I knew who he was. He was someone that I knew once or twice from my childhood. He kind of looked like gothic, uh, punk, if you know who Marilyn Manson is, that's what he looked like. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to find him. I'm just going to say what I have to, short and sweet, and then I'll get out. So I walked outside and I saw him at the bus loop. And I approached him and I sat down beside him. And I didn't use any sophisticated apologetics arguments. I didn't draw a diagram with two sides and a bridge. I didn't give him a little pamphlet. I just said, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, bro, yeah. And in that moment, he was ready to begin his walk of faith. He started coming out to church. He got baptized. He got reconciled with his family. And as far as I know, he's still walking with the, the, the Lord today. Now, today we're looking at an extremely similar story between Jonah and the Ninevites. During the past two weeks, we've been going through the book of Jonah and seeing how the story of Jonah is not some antiquated, outdated, myth, legend, fairy tale that has no relevance today, but rather it's extremely pertinent, relevant, and timely. Let me summarize it briefly if uh, you haven't been following along. Jonah was a mover and a shaker in ancient Israel. He was a staunch defender of Israel's nationalism and its superiority to the other nations around it. Um, it probably isn't a stretch to assume that Jonah had a high image of himself and probably ran in some high circles in Israel as well. Now, God... In the midst of Jonah's smugness, calls him to go to the people of Nineveh and call out against their great evil. And when I say evil, I don't mean like white-collar crime, tax evasion, insider trading. No, the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was a city, was renowned for its violence against other nations and also against their own people. So let me make a comparison. This is like if God called somebody from the, the southern Bible belt of the United States, right? Like two pistols in the holster, uh, God, guns in America t-shirt, big pickup truck with the Gaither CD blaring, right? This is like if God took this person and said, I want you to go to the Taliban and call them to repentance. That's how stark this was. And Jonah was not thrilled by this request and instead went as far and as fast as he could in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. So he got a boat, and along the way, he's riding with some people, a huge storm comes down. The non-believers on board, the pagans, if you will, they realized this was a sign of divine judgment, and they sought to understand God's will in the moment, which resulted in Jonah getting thrown overboard. When he was overboard, he got consumed by a great fish, or a whale, according to the VeggieTales translation. And while Jonah is in the belly of the beast, the depths of despair, the Sarlacc pit, he offers up a prayer. Prayer is a really nice way to put it. It's really a imperfect, self-centered, short-sighted, narrow-minded, 
arrogant, narcissistic, egotistical pity party that's veiled under this thin veneer of false piety and it's offered to God as a prayer. And the amazing thing is that God listens. He hears Jonah's prayer and has the fish spit him out and yeet him back to dry land, which is where we start today. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Let's read the first verse together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out uh, against it the message I tell you. So Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now this wording should sound really, really familiar. It's almost identical to how the very first chapter of the book of Jonah opens up. So at the start of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 3, God's word comes to Jonah. He's told the message that's to be conveyed, and Jonah responds. In the first chapter, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. But at the start of the third chapter, Jonah actually responds with obedience. Now, this is actually a literary device called parallelism, and it's very common in Semitic writing. It's simply the correspondence of two ideas that are developed in uh, two units of passage. So it's used to develop or expand an idea, or it's used to contrast two different ideas. It's the author basically saying this, hey, this is so important that I'm gonna say it twice. And it's a key to understanding the book of Jonah. Here are some other examples in scripture. This is an example in the book of Amos 5.24, synonymous parallelism. Synonymous just means similar. So it's developing two similar ideas but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. So two lines developing this idea of, what's God's, of what God's judgment is going to be using the imagery of water. Now compare that to another style of parallelism called antithetical parallelism. Antithetical is antithesis. A thesis is an idea. An antithesis is the opposite of the idea. So in Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So this is contrasting wisdom and foolishness and the effect it has on a mother and a father as well. So similarly, we see antithetical parallelism between the opening of chapter 1 and the opening of chapter 3. In the opening of chapter 1, Jonah runs in the opposite direction, but in the opening of chapter 3, Jonah actually goes to the place where God wants him to, even though if it's kind of questionable whether his heart towards the matter has really changed. Nevertheless, this chapter is front-loaded with grace from the very first verse. For the second time now, we see God's grace to the Ninevites in that he desires to warn them about their evil and tell them the truth. We see God's grace to Jonah in that he allows him to have a second chance, even though he really doesn't deserve it and God could have just as easily used somebody else. So what's the takeaway? We see that God uses broken people. I've also heard it said before that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He did the same with Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Peter, Paul, the list goes on. And this is very good news because I'm broken too. So if he did it with Jonah, he can do it with me. And if he can do it with me, he can do it with you. So let's see what he does with Jonah. Act 3, scene 1. Jonah presents. So Jonah travels to Nineveh and he goes a day's journey into the heart of the city where he is about to deliver the least seeker-sensitive sermon I've ever seen in my life. 
In the English, it's about eight words. In the original Hebrew, Jonah says five words. He says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is not a sophisticated argument. This is not a clever script. Jonah does not develop um, a sports ministry in their community or an after-school program. He lays it down straight. Forty days, or judgment is coming. And this was very similar to my delivery with the guy at my high school. I was ambivalent to the matter as a whole. I just wanted to get in and out. And I see a lot of similarities between myself and Jonah here. Now, this is not the most Canadian approach to the subject matter as a whole. We as a people seem to trumpet the values of openness, tolerance, and acceptance, whereas Jonah's message here, it can seem a little bit uh, doom and gloom, perhaps intolerant, just even a little bit offsetting. But I want to make a brief caveat. I think that, in principle, what Jonah is doing here may not be as offensive as it comes across on a first look. Consider this. Imagine an orchestra that's about to play Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suites. The conductor comes up with his little baton, and he starts to lead them. And as they're playing, the conductor notices something's off. He sees in the corner the the trumpet player is doing something weird. He says, hey, hey, Trumpy, uh, uh, hey, uh, trumpet player, poor choice of words. <laughs> what are you doing? And the trumpet player is sitting there like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, hi, um, I'm playing some jazz. Chet Baker, do you know him? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We're supposed to be playing the Nutcracker. Nutcracker? I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to play jazz, okay? I'm an artist, I'm an individual, I need to express myself. Okay, you're welcome to do that, but if you do it, we can't have a working relationship together. So if you want to play, this is what we're playing. Here's the sheet music, this is the Nutcracker. And perhaps this is similar to what God is doing to the people of Nineveh through Jonah. Look again at what Jonah says. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So does this mean that the judgment is inevitable? It's going to happen in 40 days. I just thought I would let you know. That would kind of be strange. As it's used in the Bible, 40 days is a period of trial. It's a period of testing. It's a period of proving. It's a grace period. It's used over 146 times in scripture. Last time I counted Uh, Here's a couple examples. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The two times that he received the law, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. When they sent in spies to look at the promised land, they stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights as well. So Jonah's message to the Ninevites, however brief it is, it is a message of God's disapproval and impending punishment, but also an invitation to reconciliation. So Jonah's message is a message of grace, and it's a message of mercy. In that, God loves the people of Nineveh enough to warn them. So God doesn't skimp on justice. He calls out their evil. What they're doing is wrong, it's inhumane, and it must be condemned. But God also doesn't skimp on mercy. He sends a messenger to tell them the truth about themselves, the truth about God, and offers an invitation for reconciliation. And he didn't have to do this. If you think about it, God could have only responded with justice. 
Imagine a parent that only responds to their child with justice and not with mercy. Always on their case, always punishing them, always telling them what they're doing is not enough. And that crushes a child. But also consider a parent who only responds with mercy and not with justice. That's even kind of hard to imagine. I don't know if you can have mercy without justice. Imagine a parent that lets their kid do absolutely whatever they want. There's no response. There's no uh, guiding or leading. There's no building up on their part. It's just little Timmy. He just bites all the kids at the park. Isn't that great? Yeah, he just, he just pees on everything. What a character. No, he's a menace and he needs a timeout at the least. <laughs> so God, as our father, gives us both. God loves justice because God loves mercy. God wouldn't tell you the truth if he didn't love you. One more example. If you had spinach in your teeth, your friend saw and didn't tell you, but let you go on with your day, that wouldn't be a good friend. So God sending Jonah to Nineveh is an invitation to join in his symphony of redemption. And how does uh, Nineveh respond? Nineveh repents. Act 3, scene 2. Read with me verses 5 to 9. This is the response of the Ninevites. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When I was reading this passage aloud uh, a few weeks ago, I thought, man, this is kind of a dense piece of prose. It's wordy, it's muddled, the, the composition is all over the place, it seems repetitive. A grade nine English teacher would tear this thing apart. And then I thought to myself, if it's repetitive, maybe the author is trying to get an idea across. We actually see the parallelism here again. Look, the first portion of this is just verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed, they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And then verses 6 to 9 really repeat it, but they expand on it with the synonymous parallelism. It says, the king did this. It explains the greatest to the least. The greatest to the least, the, the king to the beast, and everything in between. It shows the breadth and the depth of their turning. The breadth is the king to the beast and everything in between. That's the breadth. The depth is actually what they do. They put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. That is what you do at this time when you mourn. They did this same thing when somebody passed away. So this is them actually mourning over what they've done. And we see the pervasiveness of how far and wide this happened over the city of Nineveh. This is really the right response of repentance. And repentance can seem like an outdated term. It's kind of old fashioned, antiquated. But repentance really just means to turn. It's a remorse for one's sin with a cognitive and a connotative component marked by a belief and a behavior. And it seems fast, the Ninevites' response, but in some ways we also shouldn't be surprised by this. 
God wouldn't have insisted that Jonah go to Nineveh if God hadn't wanted to spare them the destruction. This story has been front-loaded with grace from the first verse. So Jonah brings the message of God's mercy. And Nineveh shows the purpose of God's mercy. What is that? God's mercy is to bring us back to him. The people of Nineveh turn. And what happens? God relents. Act 3, scene 3. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's two lines there repeating the same idea. The parallelism is again at work. It's emphasizing God's relenting. Look how quickly God relents. It's like he's just itching. He's just waiting for them to call on his grace. But remember this. Remember how evil the people of Nineveh are. The crazy, disgusting things that they do to other nations and they do to each other and how quick God is able to forgive. It seems strange. This is, this is over the top. It's weird. It's crazy in some ways. I hear many people saying, that the God of the Old Testament seems harsh, judgmental, whereas the God of the New Testament, you know, is very kind and loving. But that doesn't seem to fit here at all. The, The prophetic genre in scripture is filled with these calls of God's desire to forgive, to reconcile and redeem people. Look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 118, God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And one more in the same book, Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. The irony here is that Jonah's story parallels that of the Ninevites. He disobeyed God and found himself on the verge of disaster, and God gave him a second chance. The story really contrasts the response of the self-righteous versus the humble. Jonah wasn't murdering his countrymen and pillaging the foreign nations nearby, but he was just in much of a need of grace as the Ninevites. They could see it. Could he? I was talking through this passage with some friends this week, and someone pointed out, that the self-righteous, the hypocrites, the judgmental will be very disappointed when they see who's in heaven. God's mercy is much bigger than we could imagine and maybe bigger than we could even want. And as we talk about this forgiveness, this mercy, there's kind of a puzzle that arises in my mind. How can it be that God just forgives them? Haven't these people pillaged and slaughtered and committed uh, heinous crimes against humanity? How can God say, oh, you're sorry? Okay, no problem. I forgive you. This doesn't seem to compute well because we know that forgiveness always costs someone something. If, uh, If you punched me in the face, hypothetically, hypothetically, okay, even if you said sorry, I would still have a wound and I could choose to forgive you but that's me sacrificing my right to get even. Or if I steal from a store, they could say, Sawyer, we're going to forgive you, but that's also them sacrificing their right to have the debt repaid. Similar in this way, God's forgiveness comes at a cost. Ultimately, it costs him 
his son. And if we imagine redemptive history, the history of humanity from the point of creation to the point of Christ's return, the redemptive timeline, if we imagined this problem from the perspective of Jonah, it would indeed be puzzling. Their understanding, their access of this whole picture was quite limited. Uh, To change the story, if you remember Moses, he asked God, let me see your goodness. And God said, you can only see in passing as I pass by you can see the backside of me. So that was limited as well. It remained a mystery to him, as well as it remained incomprehensible to Jonah. But we don't stand where they stood. We look back and understand God's forgiveness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, and only through him, as we look back through his sacrifice, we can see all the goodness that Moses was not allowed to see, and also the goodness that Jonah was not able to discern. When Jesus died on the cross, that was when God was infinitely just because sin was punished there. But it's also when God was infinitely merciful because he took the cost upon himself. When I'm watching movies with my girlfriend, now fiance, I like to point out to her the similarities between myself and the main character. So when Denzel Washington beats up 30 mobsters, I say, yeah, that's me, that's me. Or when uh, Aragorn runs into Mordor for Frodo, right? I say, hey girl, that's that's me over there. Doesn't usually appreciate it though. Hardness of heart. Uh, But usually when I'm reading the Bible, I find it much easier to relate to the bad guys of the story. I see Jonah's apathy, his reluctance, his pride, and I say, yeah, that's, that's me. I see how the Ninevites are distant from God, how they're sinning against one another, how they need God to extend his grace, his mercy, his truth. And I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's me. The Bible isn't even full of good guys and bad guys. It's full of bad guys who need Jesus. And Jesus is the better Jonah. He did not run from the will of the Father, but was the perfect embodiment of it. He spent three days in a tomb, not because of his sin, but because of ours. And when he emerged, he was not ambivalent to our relationship with God or to how we treated one another. He not only brought the news of God's mercy, but was the means of God's mercy itself. In this chapter, we see the two threads of justice and mercy weaving in and out of each other, forming this double helix that is the DNA of the story. It's the DNA of our story. It's the DNA of God's story. And in this story, we see that Jonah presents, Nineveh repents, and God relents. Jonah shows the message of God's mercy. Nineveh shows the purpose of God's mercy. And God's response to them shows the immensity of God's mercy.